Hi, I'm Warren Davies, the Unbreakable Farmer, and welcome to the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast, where I have the privilege to be joined by some amazing people I get to meet in my travels and share their stories and wisdom with you. After all, one of the most powerful assets of any community is the shared wisdom, and the best way to share that wisdom is through storytelling. So sit back and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast. Um, today's guest, it's absolute, an absolute privilege for me because um, this man's been a, a mentor of mine for many years, um, but he's also a educator, a well-respected educator, um, a speaker, a best-selling author. Uh, he's, he's done lots in his lifetime. He's, um, he's travelled across Australasia and internationally um, with his his work and it's an absolute privilege um today to have on the podcast mick walsh so welcome walshy thanks for coming on oh it's great to see you wara we go back a long way mate oh <laughs> uh, we do and um it's, it was interesting i was reading in your bio that um it says you're a dynamic and inclusive communicator and i'd agree with that from back in your football coaching days it's um and that's i think why we had a bit of success while you were our coach so it's um a privilege so a bit of our background story is that, that mick was uh, one of my footy coaches and and we had a little bit of a um a great period of winning a couple of flags and um but he's also in our local town was a was a an educator, and I, I, I move away from that word teacher because I think Mick, you were one of what they really, what we class as an educator, not a teacher. Um, and yeah, so it's a great privilege to have you on today. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you can talk whenever you want as well. But a few questions, but we're just going to have a chat today about your career and and about stepping into that world as a speaker and facilitator and author um, and talk about resilient well-being particularly um, within within schools and within our within our youth as well so tell us a little bit about your your early career how you, well, how you become a teacher and and how you found yourself in Kyabram and then from there um, traveling the world doing what you do now yeah okay thanks Warren look they were great years at the footy club. Um, I'm from part of a big family, a heap of brothers and one sister. I think mum tricked dad into having my little sister. Had a heap of boys first. I grew up in a place called Glenroy, which is part of Broad Meadows. Um, there were very few of us from Broadie that actually went to university back in the day. But um, I got to go because they made it free. <laughs> so <laughs> the only, only way I made it to Melbourne Uni. And... Um, so I did teaching and I was working and doing all that stuff and I got through and um, it was good. You know, it was, it was a really funny dynamic that a boy from Broadie was mixing with all the people, most people that went to uni were from the south of the Yarra. So it was an interesting group of dynamic for me mixing with them. Um, and I was playing a lot of footy then and, you know, in the VFA and stuff like that. And so life was busy, 
uh, I got married very young, Lynn and I. You know, that's what you did back in the day. You know, none of this getting married at 30, you know, 22, it's no. all done. <laughs> I lost my dad. And, and then you start having children, but that was just normal, you know. And then, and then I lost my dad at a fairly young, you know, formative age. And, and so I was the oldest boy in the family. So I had to take a bit more of a role to support mum. And, you know, I had a wonderful uncle, mum's brother, who was like a dad. So, yeah, it was good growing up. Um, resilience. Look, I mean, it's the most overused word. You know, I was speaking at a conference last year and one, one of the director generals of education, I won't say what state, but in a 20-minute 20 20 keynote, used the word eight times. So I had lunch with this person because I wanted to know if they actually knew what it meant. Yeah. And uh, the only explanation she could say was bounce back. And so I learned that it's a whole lot of little habits that you develop. And I call them keystone habits. And keystone habits enable other habits, Warren. And so I don't look at the word resilience. I look at the skills that you've got to acquire to actually, you know, respond well to challenges. I don't call it bouncing back. Yeah. You know, like 2,500 years ago, Buddha said, disappointments, failures and setbacks are as important as successes in developing character. And I, I just don't think we allow young kids today to fail enough. Yeah. And so... And so my thing is that the first keynote habit, keystone thing I learned was um, my first choice in life is choosing to choose. I, I reckon there's always a choice. Yep. There's always a path. And so that leads to things like optimism and hope for your future. Yeah. I reckon I can influence my future. And my message to everyone when I do, when I help them out is... You can influence your own future. In fact, the research is about 40% uh, of your future can be influenced by your direct thoughts. Yeah. You know, so, you know, nature and nurture, you know, all that stuff. So, and I think a lot of people are choosing not to choose. Um, I think that's important. Uh, so then, you know, we we're in, we're had bought a little house in a place called, Yarraville. Now, I played footy for Yarraville in the VFA too. And it was the only place in Melbourne we could afford to buy a house because it was so you know, cheap. And we were surrounded by immigrant families. It was wonderful. It was a dead end street. We used to have gutter parties with the big uh, bluestone gutters. And we'd close the street off, and the kids would run around. And the abattoirs would bring along, you know, they're all abbeys in the street. They'd bring along, we'd have a big barbie on Sunday. Oh, it was just great. Great way to grow up. And then I started teaching in a place called Sunshine West High School. No one wanted to go there, Warren. They couldn't staff it. So all us young teachers went there. And it was an absolute riot. And this is when I started to really realise that I had it pretty lucky growing up. These kids were what we called lockout kids. 
Yeah, this is back in late 70s. Yep. And Lockheed kids, their parents, hard-working New Australians, would leave for work at 6 in the morning and they'd lock the kids out of the house till they got home at 6 at night. So the kids would come to school. That's the only place they hung out. And uh, they get to school at, you know, 6.30, 7 in the morning. And they'd stay till 5.30, caught to 6 at night. So all us young ones, we just said, well, let's take them down to swimming pools. So the school was 1,400 kids, Sunshine West High School. We used to meet the kids down there and um, they started swimming and we taught them how to swim. And we went from being the worst swimming school in the state and every year we won the title. We won E-grade, then D, then because we gave the kids an opportunity and they were prepared to fail when they first hopped in a pool. It was like a tumble dry. But then they learned to fail and through failure they built success, adversity, you know, success through adversity. And then same with athletics. They'd all be around in an afternoon and we're all young and stupid and enthusiastic. So we taught them how to run and throw shot puts and in the same in sports, we went from the bottom to the top. And I remember one thing one day, there's young, two young athletes, and I used to mow the lawn at the 400 track with a push mower. So I'd start the push mower and I'd walk. You know, I had to do, we only had six lanes, but that lot took four hours. And I had to mow it every week. And then this, these two young kids, oh, they were wonderful children. They would have been about 13, 14. Um, they said they'd do it for me every Sunday. So I called up one Sunday and it brought tears to my eyes. They were pushing the mower, but the engine wasn't going. And they're walking around pushing it. See, they'd never seen a lawnmower work. Yeah. And, and because their family had no money, they used to push start their car every morning because the battery was flat. So they thought with the mower, if you push started it, it'd start. Now, those kids pushed that mower and pushed it and pushed it. And some may say they were silly. I reckon that was resilient. Yeah. And so that was good. That was the best four years we had. And then people started asking me to go up the bush and coach footy. And we had three kids by then, Lynn and I, three little boys. So we went, come to, well, we could have gone to quite a few places, but we chose Kyabra. My stepdad um, had been a policeman and he'd been a copper in Rushworth and Benalla and Echuca. And he told us about this place called Kai. He said, it's the best town he's ever seen. So we come to Kai. And started Lucky coaching, us. you know, at Westworth and, and trying to get a little recalcitrance like you into the line. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, and that was only, you know, it was only a three-year contract, basically, Mora. 
Yeah. And we stayed twenty three and a half years. We were lucky to we were lucky to get you get you when oh, we got no. you. <laughs> no, I think I think Lynn and I were the beneficiaries and our three sons. Like our boys were that big when they came to town and they left as men. Um and we had no idea. We're both from City, Lynn Lynn's from Sunshine, I was from Broady. In the, in Melbourne, people don't seem to like each other. They don't give each other time. Country people taught me and Lynn was that other people matter. And that's another big one of res, of resilience. If you're not prepared to reach out for social connectedness, um, you're never going to be able to bounce back. No one can do it on their own. Yeah, no, so it takes a, it takes, a commu- takes a community of, of yeah, take, as they say, it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a whole community for that sort of stuff. And that's one of the things that I talk about as well. Like community is a massive part of what I talk about is because it's, it's really important. And it's important as, as far as resilience goes as well because <clears throat> you can't do it by yourself. And isolation, I always say isolation is the biggest killer. Because you know you isolate yourself, you've you've got you know you're really reducing any chances that you've got to recover. Then, oh yes, yeah, certainly you're on the money there. It's um, <clears throat> I think COVID kind of exacerbated a lot of it too. Um, there's there's a thing that our intrinsic motivation comes from. It's called self determination theory, and and it's our Ability to be intrinsically motivated comes from having these three senses. Sense of autonomy, like I alluded to earlier. Yeah, we've got to believe we've got choices. Think about COVID. Did people have choices? No. We've got to have a sense of connectedness. Were we allowed to be connected? No. Yeah. And we've got to have a sense of competence. In other words, feel that we've got what it takes to get through this. I think a lot of people lost that too. So that's where places like Kyabra and these towns, they they provided that because we could still function within that. Yeah. The people in the city unfortunately lost everything. And the best place to be during COVID was in a country community, like the places you talk at. It was because you were, yeah. you still had, you know, obviously we've got two kids that live in Melbourne and uh, it was really tough on them, like the, where we still had yeah. some freedoms, which made you feel guilty at the same time. But yeah, it was a lot. Yeah. At least we could move around and make a, a few choices um, where they had none. They were all taken away basically for, for, you know, extended periods of time, which had, you know, massive impact on. On their well-being and on their, you know, on their friends and and everyone that was in Melbourne at that time. Um, so once you got to Kyabram, obviously you thought you were only going to be here for for three years, <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't. You were here for a lot longer, um, and you became very entrenched in the community, but as also um, within the school as well. Um, Tell us a little bit a bit more about your your journey at Kyabram. Uh, you know, like when we went there, um, and this doesn't happen today, young teachers don't 
tend to live in the country town that they go to. They tend to live in a Chuka or Shep or something. So back in those days, you know, the, uh, the teachers supported parents in running all the footy, all the cricket, all the basketball, part of the theatre club, just the whole community. So we loved it. We, you know, we, we just loved being part of it and seeing other. We got our joy from um, seeing other people flourish. And so that's what we basically did. And then alluding to what I do now, in the late 90s, I started to really notice that the whole shift in education had gone from building good people, you know, capable of having a really good life, to building brainiacs. The only scene with thing, the only thing that seemed to matter was having standardised kids meet standardised benchmarks and taught by standardised teachers. Yeah. And I just, I just couldn't abide by that. So I started researching and creating stuff to help our kids at Kai. And um, yeah. And then a whole lot of other schools wanted to use it, and that's how it all started. So, so explain. Yeah. So ex- obviously, I know <laughs> because of, um, like, we had kids going through um, th- that period. But explain how, like, so when you say I started helping, so that was the the, the birth of learning curve. With is that right? Like, so, um, yeah, so tell, yeah, tell us about tell us about that. Oh, um, I think all of us as teachers and parents, um, we all just were in generalisations. They'd say, we'd say to kids, go home and summarise this. Go home and study this. Go home and ride an essay on this. Had any of us ever taught them how to do that? You just know, an expectation. Like I'm, I'm watching footy. Yeah, like I'm, watch, I'm watching footy now and I go back to the great Hawthorne Geelong sides in the 90s and early 2000s. And if a guy was on the run 40 metres out, never missed because they were coached in the fine skills of the game. And um, and we lost that on all these strategies and all these fancy things. And now, you know, they can't kick over a jam tin to kick it. Yeah, you know, you've got to get it through there to win. Forget about all the strategies. That's where it's got to go. And I remember um, it was quite funny. A good friend of ours, mutual friend, Steve Kerwin. Yep. Steve was a oh, decorated Kai footballer. And he, he ended up going over and helping mate of his as an assistant coach. And this mate of his, and I won't mention his name, had been at Hawthorne and, and learned all this stuff. So Steve said, oh, yeah, I'll come help you. So anyway... A good man, Steve. He rang me up after the first night of coaching. He said, Mick, have you said of you've heard of inside mids and outside mids and left hand mids and underside mids? I said, What are you talking about, Steve? He said, That's what they're telling the guys. And he said, All these dumb footballers just looking at them saying, What in the hell are they talking about? So we I just wanted to get back to teaching kids firstly how to learn and think, and secondly, how to live a good life. So these journals, I'll just show you what they look like. That's for this one for year eight. There's one for prep, 
you know, where's the prep one? I'll show you. Where is it? That's a little, that's the one for prep, you know, just a lot of big stuff in there for them. Yep. One for prep right through to year 12. So I started, I wrote them during COVID actually, Warwick, because I couldn't go yep. anywhere. Yep. So I started simply and then as I left school when NAPLAN started in mid-2008, and it's really interesting that the escalation in adolescent mental health pretty well correlated with the start of NAPLAN. You know, the focus, these, you know, I speak in a school or at a conference nearly every day, like you, um, but in COVID it was all doing it like this. Um, yep. But I just noticed those poor devils, they're getting, they're getting weighed all the time by their respective education departments and rank, ranking schools and, you know, it's like it's just like saying, oh, Coabron is playing Geelong this weekend. Uh, Coabron get beaten. Gee, they're no good. You know, you've got to you've got to compare horses with horses, and so I started writing and stuff just to really worry about the kids and forget about all this foolishness of ridiculous fake standards. I wanted to get I want to have good kids walking out that school door <coughs> and equip our teachers with because they're not taught this stuff at uni. Equip them with the confidence and knowledge that they could you know, play their part in building good, resilient, capable young people. And so I, that's how I it think started. And I think that's one of the things that like I've obviously noticed, um, obviously with going through the school system myself and then having <clears> five <throat> kids go through the school system that you, you notice yeah. that... Um, yeah, the way they get taught is totally different these days than what it was then. Um, and it, like, and I, I can, uh, you know, uh, there's not as much, I suppose, and care is not the right word because they have to care, but it's a different sort of um, care, I suppose. And and they're not their their main focus is probably on the job and not on. The results of you know what they're or the impact that they can have on on the people that they that they teach like because it is it's a a very important role that that um that teachers play in a person's life and they can make it or break it and you know part, part of my story is is that you know going to a catholic boys school in melbourne and being subjected to a fair bit of bullying has had a massive impact on my life and and my self esteem and you know and not and not playing the victim to that but just that was part of life and um you know so that it could have gone either way and it went you know it my path took me there you know down the I suppose suffering from anxiety and and you know school not working out for me because of just because there was at that school there wasn't I suppose the care because it was a private boys school so it was more academic and it probably wasn't suited for me but I think that individual individual like it, applying someone's strengths to the, to what they're doing is is really important and um and giving the 
giving students or giving people the the ability to be able to work to their strengths and not to their weaknesses helps them thrive. So when you talk about all this stuff, can you give us a, a bit of a rundown on on the model that you use to be able to, um, well, like I know you've got your personable skills um, are one side. You don't probably give yourself enough credit for that. But for, for, a, for a bloke to stand who's a principal or an, an assistant principal at a school to stand at a gate and or walk through, I can still remember this um, as a school counsellor and it would have been in your last little bit at school, but, you know, one of the one of the I suppose one of the things that declined when you left our school was rubbish on the school ground, <laughs> rubbish on the school ground, because you knew everyone by their first name, whether they were in, you know, year seven or year twelve. You knew everyone by their and they all knew you as Walshy. And you know, if you said pick up that rubbish, it got picked up, um, and there was no disrespect and. Um, wow. So your, your your personable skills are a part of what makes you who you are. But but what's that framework that you, that you now yeah. use that helps yeah. build those? Um, I suppose helps people work, um, work to their strengths. I know from uh, on the football side of it what you used to do, but as as a in in school, what what do you teach? What's that framework? Well, I mean. Firstly, this is with the rubbish thing. <laughs> I, now, I just want to yeah, just for a minute. I never told kids to pick up rubbish. I used to role model it and walk around outside picking it up and go to a group of kids while I'm picking it up, say, give us a hand, will you, please? And when the yard was dirty, I'd say to the kids, hey, look, and this is what I meant. I really meant this. I couldn't give a stuff about rubbish. I said, look, people are going to drive past and they're going to see our place you know, with stuff not looking good. And they're going to think, those kids at that school are no good. I said, you are fantastic. We're letting ourselves down, all of us. Come on, let's have a crack. And I think everything you've got to do is role modelling. And I think you've got to show up even when you don't want to show up. I remember, I don't know whether you were with the team, I remember one day we were... The teams you played in, we probably lost five games, six games in three years or something. Something ridiculous. And remember the guys turn up this Saturday and they walked in and they're laughing and carrying on and I said a couple of things. And they're still horsing around. They're all re-changed, kitted up to go out. I said, get dressed, put on your civvies, get out of the change rooms and don't come back in till you're ready to play. Because if you guys haven't shown up today, so get out. And they thought I was an idiot. But when they came back in, they were in the moment. They, were, they weren't on autopilot. And too many of us spend our lives on autopilot, not choosing to notice the little fat dog walking down the road or the colour of the flowers or helping someone push a trolley. We choose not to notice that. And being part of being resilient, like I do something really dumb when I get stuck in traffic like I'm sure you do. On the car, I've got a thing, you spin the dial with all your um, contacts. And 
And when it stops, I just press green when I hear it stop. And people go, oh, Mick, how are you? How are you going? I said, who am I talking to? I said, you rang me, you idiot. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and all of a sudden, self-generating positive emotions. Like, you know, if we don't have more than four positives for every one negative, our life is just going to languish. So I think it's important to create positives. And I, I used to do it by role modelling. And um, so, that, look, I frameworks. And this just is before you go, that, just before you go on to frameworks. Yes, I was in that room. I was in that. <laughs> I was one of them. And it's amazing how when you say modelling, because I remember my first coaching thing. I can remember telling everyone to get off the ground off the ground on a Thursday night, and I told them to take their gear off and get dressed and piss off. <laughs> Basically, so I role modelled this and said, if you want to play at this club, you've got to be fair dinkum and I'll be back out in the middle of the ground waiting and whoever's fair dinkum come out. Whoever doesn't, just get in your car and go home. Everyone come back out, thankfully, because I would have been a bit short the next Saturday. But, yes, no, I was in that room. So, And that's what I, I mean, your personal skills. Like I can I can still remember, like you used to do everything to 120%, like down to the... You know, we we weren't playing like AFL footy or anything, but we all knew about our opponents and what they did. You used to do all the research and you'd give us all little notes to tuck into our footy boots and stuff like that if we got stuck in the middle of a game that we could pull out and read. Like it was all just stuff that was, you know, you weren't just a coach that turned up, you were all in. and, 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 you know, as I said, that's part of who you are, um, that makes things happen, your personable skills. But it's, a, I suppose, yeah, talking about this framework yeah. that other people can use. Well, look, there's there's a million different frameworks for well-being and resilience, a million of them. But they all boil down to the same thing, Laura. Um, and <clears throat> I probably the gold standard is PERMA, PERMA-H, which is Positive emotions, um, engagement, relationships. What's more important in the world than a relationship? Meaning. I, I, the Japanese call their meaning uh, their ikigai, their reason for getting out of bed. If we haven't got a reason to get out of bed, stay in the cot. Accomplishment. Now, I don't measure accomplishment by getting straight A's. Uh, I measure accomplishment by setting something that you want to do and whether that's painting a bedroom, uh, having a beautiful garden, that's accomplishment. But aim for it and work towards it. And health. So that framework, PERMA-H, is that describes it, but it does not achieve it. Paul Kelly from little things, big things grow. So what is in these books, the stuff I write about, there are just pages and pages of activities. So to become something, becoming, you've got to do before you become. You've got to do before you become. And 
So all the framework does is say, right, this is what the research says. If we do PERMA-H properly and put in the resilience skills, you know, optimism and hope, self-belief, self-regulation, controlling impulses, think flexible thinking, social connectedness and empathy, if we do them right, but we keep doing little things, little, smile, Smile's the most powerful human communicator in the world. And if you I just say to people, if you see someone not smiling, lend them one of yours. It's impossible not to smile back if someone smiles at you. It's impossible. And so within the framework, every week, one week we'll have positive emotion. I call it positive emotion plus gratitude. And it'd be an activity. It could be about feelings and thinking where I explain to adults like I wrote this for the workforce. Frontline workers use this. Thousands, tens of thousands of them are used for people um, to have their own little bit of ten minutes a day to do these little activities. You with me? Yeah. Little <laughs> things. So there's a PERMA and then there's a re- and an activity on optimism and hope. Now, next week it's on engagement. It could be on flow, full engagement. And then there could be an activity on flexible thinking, like habits of mind. And then next week there's an article on relationships and it could be on smiling. And another of the resilient skills, you know, um, Autonomy, choosing to choose. And then the next week, meaning. You know, it could be I'm finding your sense of purpose. You know, so that's, I'm not, I research like hell. Yeah. But all the researches, the outcomes of research are very sterile. I just try to turn the research into activities that teachers. I was, I'm working with a big mob to facilitate the uh, NDIS. Like, um, and that alone, they buy 10,000 of these books, the Wellbeing at Work journals, for their frontline workers who do an oh, incredible job. And it's, it's just building their capacity to do little things. Little things. You know, text a friend in the morning. We've all got friends who we know are struggling. Send them a text saying, mate, I'm thinking of you. you got no idea the uplifting spirals that creates. You know, the smallest, yeah, just often if I've got an audience, you know, we all have audiences that think they know it all. And I say to them, I'll defy anyone in this room to say that they cannot make a difference, a positive difference to someone else's life through a small act of kindness. I'll defy anyone. And so this framework, that's all it is, but it provides a place, an organised place, where the activities are addressing each of these elements. So it's quite scientific. In, in terms of all bases are covered, 
but it's all about doing to become. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, um, look, no one was born resilient. You don't get resilient by just getting older. You know, you, you get resilient. You know, I remember I got suspended from school once. I used to have a bit of a temper and used to like to knock a few blokes over back in the day. And um, this is all really ironic. Do you remember briquettes, Warra? You know, they used to yep. put them in heaters. Yep. Well, this guy, the old man, when I was suspended, I thought I'd be able to stay at home for a week. Every morning he dropped me down the briquette yard to load sacks of briquettes. I'd come home absolutely pitch black. And I said, Jesus, I better have a go at school. I don't want to do this the rest of my life. So it's, it's just, look, it's a framework, but you've got to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, look, you know, there are people out there that want to simplify it too much. That we live in a world where simple works, you know, but it, the reality is it's not enough. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's, we just got to do. Quote I use a lot. Oscar Wilde once said, um, you know, the rarest thing in the world is to live. Most of us merely exist. So, And we've got a choice. We can get out there and look for our choices and have a go at things and aim to generate positive emotions, aim to be engaged, aim to build respect for relationships, find a reason to get out of bed, you know, that's a choice. But it's not big choices. It's little things. And uh, if, we, if we can choose to do those little things, well, life's going to be an oyster. And that's one of the things I find working in communities, particularly communities that have been uh, like affected by natural disasters and that it's just the, you know, piece by piece, those little bits that you've got to, you know, start doing, recognising, whatever, and that that starts with just caring for the, the person next to you, like, and then well, caring for yourself, caring for the person next to you, then you, you know, and slowly but surely that, that builds it because ah. um, so, when, I, when, I, when I talk about, like I talk about resilience and, and it's exact, obviously both of us use those words, but, they are overused and particularly in rural communities they're overused because you know a lot of rural communities that I speak in particularly farming communities hate being called resilient because like they're over being resilient <laughs> because it's just one thing after another like and, and I heard someone quote like they're um and I talk about this as well because it kind of sums up my story a little bit because you know me being resilient one of the things is is when we talk about doing, I just kept doing and kept doing and kept doing, but didn't. I wasn't doing the other bits, like looking after the other little parts of me, and everything started falling. So I was doing the, you know, doing the the main task, but not the other tasks that that yeah. complete the whole jigsaw puzzle. And I fell apart. Someone, but I read a quote, and I also use this because it's it's also. Um, applicable when you're in a certain situation that resilience isn't for so much a character trait as lack of other um, options when you're when you feel that you're stuck you know particularly in a 
in that you know natural disaster kind of situation where you you're, you're stuck, but you have got choices. The thing is, is it, it's all those little things that make that big picture. And if you ah. you keep you keep chipping away, like if I go back to so if I go back to Walshy, the football coach, like I've still got Walshyism still running around in my head, and you know the the arms of steel and the hands of velvet, and all those little sayings <laughs> that you used to say, and all those little things made you a better footballer. You didn't think it at the time. And I wish I had known what I know now and what you were trying to teach me instead of probably uh, trying to knock heads with you or whatever, you know, if you were trying to tell, if I had known you were just trying to help, I would probably would end up playing AFL. I always say yeah, that well, if yeah, I know what you had it, if I had, if I know what I know, know now, Back then, or yeah, would have been a totally different footballer, um, and that's just in football, but that in life in general, and some of the stuff that I know now, I didn't do when I was, you know, we were in the middle of the drought or whatever. Um, I was doing the the big things, but not the little things that that create the jigsaw puzzle. Well, I think the jigsaw puzzle. Um, look, the most important relationship. Every single one of us has is a relationship with with ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's the thing we've got to get. And it's it's not selfish at all. We cannot help anyone else if we haven't got our stuff together. And um, like like I, one of the big things I advocate is to go to the Via website, viacharacter.org, and do your character strengths test. There are 24 strengths that have lived through every religion, every civilization, and you do this scientific test, and that tells you what your strengths are in order. So if you can use that as a lens by which you look at the world through your top strengths, it's um, massive. See, I mean, we're told too much about what we can't do. I'm, I'm interested in what we can do. But, you know, talking about, you know, I never coach football to win. I coach football to build young men who could leave the footy club. And, you know, winning was a – that was a side thing. That that, that just happened because we did build good young men. Yeah. I remember when I was playing in Melbourne <laughs> and I, at the time because all of us were throwing up on the ground, we were training early in the year. And we'd finished training, this coach, he's a very well-known coach in the VFA. Anyway, he'd, he'd get the fastest guy on the point post and we'd all get a head start. We'd have to run a 400 round to the other point post. In certain, imagine doing that guy, right? Big round. Yeah. So we'd run like hell and they let this guy go after we were about 50 minutes in front, 50 metres in front, and he invariably caught some blokes the big slow blokes. And this coach saying, okay, we're doing it again. So once again, he caught someone again. By this stage, two 400s were starting to get a bit perky, so we do it again. And it took us about five or six training nights of vomiting at the end of training doing this before the fancy pants runners out the front said, we're going to be doing this forever if we don't get back and help the big guys. So then 
after about the seventh week, a whole lot of blokes to get come down the back and get under the arms of the big guys and haul them around the around the oval. And when that started happening, you could see the coach, and I didn't realise at the time. Um, you could see him going, "We're right. They care about each other. Yeah. They care." They're there for each other. And that that was a galvanising thing. So, look, at school, in life, people don't care what you know until they know you care. You know, they don't, they don't care. But they just want to know. They remember how you make them feel. And I don't think a lot of us, That's a, I think that's what education's about. I think that's what you do. I think that's what community's about. There's got to be caring. Yeah, and um, it's very, very important. Yeah, and so, so how we how we get to that stage, um, you know, I've got my way of trying to do it, or what I contribute to communities. Um, it worries me, though, that it really does worry me that this world at the moment. We tend to value what we measure. Um, so the only thing, just I ask you, are the only things that count are things that can be counted? How do you measure compassion? How do you measure prudence? How do you measure diligence? How do you measure kindness? Because you can't measure them, the powers that be couldn't give a fat rats about it. Can't attach, uh, they can't attach any financial or, yeah, they can't justify any of that because you can't measure it and it's, yeah. <laughs> but you can measure it from the consequences. So so at Kai, we had the lowest lowest rate of absence of both teachers and kids. People wanted to be there. And that was because we did these little things. And I just think it's the same managers. I've got... So many companies that manages them, they look at KPIs. And I say to them, woo, 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 woo. get the person right and that other rubbish will look after itself. Connect with your staff. Become a leader. See, leaders put in private effort, private efforts that no one else can see. Whereas managers put in public efforts that they want everyone to see. Yep. And so I think it's about being selfless and putting in behind-the-scenes efforts that no one sees. Yeah. You know, it's always good to be found out by stealth, Warren. Yeah, you don't you have know what to. I mean? um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, you don't need to be the one up on the soapbox all the time. It's the little things that, that you do behind the behind the scenes. And, you know, that's hopefully I, that's what I pride myself on, like, yeah, you you see the stuff that I do traveling to communities and and stuff like that, but it's the other stuff that I do that no one no one knows about, no one sees. That um, that's the important stuff. Oh, you know, and and you talk about the jigsaw puzzle. You know, people say, "Oh, well, what?" Well, it's really funny. I ask this all the time. Like the curriculum doesn't matter, right? All the curriculum is is a vehicle to build to build 
thinking processes in young people and uh, and to help them to live a life. You know, it doesn't matter whether they whether it was I mean, yeah, when was when did that happen? Seventeen seventy eight. Sorry, wrong. It was seventeen seventy nine. That's crap. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But some I ask teachers, what are the five most important steps in teaching? And oh gee, they go into a frenzy, mate. Um, <laughs> So you, you know, say, oh, curriculum, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, 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 the five steps before you walk into a classroom. See, the teacher's in an analytical mindset when they're going to class, thinking about what they're teaching. The kids are always in an empathetic mindset. But our neural constraints mean that analytical and empathetic can't, can't coexist. It's either one or the other. Do the kids have to change for the teacher or does the teacher have to change for the kids? So I'll just say the five most important steps are the five steps before we walk into a class. And they are, it's an absolute privilege to be teaching these young people today. I'm thrilled. There'll be no fear in our class. I'm not God. I want to find out what the kids know about this stuff. Kids are going to know I'm kind and generous. And the last step before I walk in is, wow, we're going to have a ball today. And, you know, deliberately make mistakes. So, and then I got, this is when the jigsaw puzzle thing you said, I said, if I didn't do that before every class I taught, and I mean every class, while the kids know how to learn and think, if I don't do that, they have, they've got all the pieces of the jigsaw, but they haven't got the picture on the box. Yeah. I am the picture on the box. And I think in our relationships, Wara, we are the picture on the box for other people. And that picture on the box um, signifies that they matter. We do things to show that. And then they will pay that forward to more people. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very important. Yeah. That, yeah, that that's good. Um, that's very important. Like, yeah, paying, yeah, being that that I suppose leader, um, that someone then pays your story forward. I know, you know, as a speaker, if <clears throat> if I hear someone then sharing their story because I've sh- empowered them to share, like, by sharing my stories, empowered them or given them permission to share their own story, um. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's that's the ultimate compliment as a speaker, or, or doing what oh, I do. Yeah. If, if someone shares shares their story because they've heard heard you share yours, that's um that's so that's powerful. That's that's the best best thing. Well, you like I mean, I I mean I watch you from afar now, uh, you know, and and with you know these machines and all that. The thing you are now, what you're doing, is you're an incredible role model in sharing and caring and people, you just don't realise how much that makes people realise what, remember, intrinsic motivation? Choice, confidence, yeah. I've got what it takes and I feel connected. And when when you talk, that just oozes and your audience wants to go out there and do it. Yeah. And look, I'll tell you what, I'll just show you this. this. A lot of what I do is on neuroscience. I do the research. So when I do talks, I often put this on. This is um, 
This is my brain hat, Warren. <laughs> so, yeah, there it's a, that's yeah. a prefrontal cortex. You know, my brain things, yeah. yeah. My amygdala is there that creates a feeling. And teaching people about how their brains work a little bit, like, you know, I just did with analytical and empathetic, they start to get it. Yeah. You know, they start to say, ah, is that why I'm a hard ass at times? Because I'm thinking analytically that I've got no room for empathy. Yeah. You know, so it's a it's awareness. And, um, and I just think, you know, I'd love, I'd love to get back. Oh, I'm not going to do it, but getting back into a school where people matter and letting kids fail and just challenge them. Because a lot of parents won't let their kids fail. And if you don't fail, you're not self-aware. <clears throat> and, yeah. and, and, and the third in emotional intelligence, self-regulation, self-awareness, and number three, you've got to have the first two to have number three, is understanding other people. So how many young people now, and not a lot of old people, um, have got no empathy because they haven't got, they haven't been allowed to fail and become aware. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, you've got no awareness of what it's like. Can I mention one other phenomenon that's really taking over? A lady named Baron, Baron, uh, Baroness Susan Green, Greenfield. There's a thing called virtual autism and it's a real, all the signs of it are, are and it comes from screens. Yep. And it's it's resulting in severely severe impairment of interpersonal skills. But the other thing that's happening is that the non-stop images that are coming from the screens are reducing people's brain's ability to create their own images. You know, we used yep. to visualise in footy and stuff like that, right? And the results are it's it's like a form of autism. Unless they're mesmerised, the real world doesn't stimulate people who are addicted to um, social media. It's a yep. real <laughs> phenomenon. It's only about 10 years old, actually. And we yep. just don't know what having dopamine in our system all the time is going to do to to people. Yeah. Scary, it's scary a, stuff. It is like and and that's if that you've got this unrealistic of unrealistic view of what the world's meant to look like because you see unrealistic stuff on social media. Like people only want only because that's one of the things that I and anyone that follows my social media and and I explain this in some of my talks is that, you know, if you follow my social media carefully enough, you'll basically know how I'm feeling on that day when I post yeah. because that's just, it's, it's, but a lot of people, social media is their, I suppose their facade. They only want you to see what you, what they want you to see, not all the stuff that's behind. And um, that gives other people an unrealistic view of what's going on. And then, yeah. you know, especially with influencers and stuff like that, you know, a lot of that's just unrealistic. You know, it's, it's not real. Um, you and you get to meet some of these people along the way, and you go, "Well, shit, I don't want, their, don't want their life for nothing," because like it all looks good on 
as a, as a photo or a picture, but their real life's not that flash um, because, yeah, they're probably lonely and all that sort of stuff because they've got no connection because it's all done through a camera and all done through a, a lens and a screen. Real, real people, yeah. real time, real world, be stimulated. You know, make the choice to take notice of things. Every Notice something different every day. So that probably yeah. leads into one of my my last couple of questions, and I think you've answered one of them because um, one of the questions I ask is, "Have you got a favourite quote?" And you've already given us a couple, but have you got a apart from the ones that you've given us? Have you got any other favourite quotes that you uh, that you that yeah, you love? Look, and there's one thing that that served me well. The old man said to me when I was very young. He said, "Mick, the right thing to do." is nearly always a hard thing to do. Yep. And, um, and and that links up with you've got to listen to your mind and follow what t- that tells you is the right thing for you to do. Yeah. And if and that's and that's a hard thing listening to your mind. So yeah, the hard thing to do is nearly always the right thing to do. And unfortunately, uh, it's a bit easy these days not to do the hard thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I reckon kids have got to fail. I, I was talking to a lady. We have a few beers over at Twin Towns on a Sunday afternoon and Lisa's a great nurse and uh, and we're talking about why COVID took hold so much and it was really interesting. She was saying about, you know, the research is that we haven't let, I mean, Warry used to be crawling around Ron's cow yard you know, amongst cow pats and all sorts of things. And your yep. immune system grew so well. You know, you got down and dirty and, you know, your body was creating its own brilliant immune system. Well, these yep. kids have been wrapped up in bloody cotton wool. Yeah. And their immune systems are hopeless. Yeah. And we've created that ourselves. So yep. um, that's another reason it really took off, you know. We just... We've cleaned ourselves up too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were tribal. We, we, we lived off the land and now what are we? We don't have yep. to hunt and get dirty anymore. Yeah, so that's yeah. my quote. Yeah. Yep. What about a favourite book? Ah, uh, yeah. I've, I've got heaps of them. Um, look, I mean, obviously I stopped reading years ago, and I started about three years ago reading again. I read every morning. When I get up, I'll get up at quarter to five, go for an hour and a half walk and read for half an hour. Um, And I started with Lee Child, Jack Reacher, and then Mitch Rapp and then David Baldacci. But serious type books, I've got one here that I love. Um. And we live in this apartment when we're home, Warra. And so we've got a community notice board, so I write a little article every of, week and put it up. So, of, so, of course I'll you be, of course you do. So that was last week and what the week before. So and anyway, this guy he's he is a gun, this fella. He's selfless. Uh, and he turns research, like like what I try to do, I'm nowhere near as good as this guy, but he turns research 
Tel Ben Shahar. Yeah. So there are, oh, you can't see it, but there are 101 little things. So what's this one? Focus on strengths and abilities. So we've got a bit of theory and an example of someone using it in their life. Yeah. So I think if people, I try to avoid talking on theory, you've got to tie it to real things that people can relate to. And I know that's what you do very well. I'm a big believer in that. Like statistics mean nothing. Like if we talk about mental health and suicide, statistics mean nothing because it's the effect that it has on that family and that community. Uh, uh, The statistics don't even, you know, don't even um, really count because it's the impact, the individual impact that it has and then that ripple effect that it has through through community. So I never – statistics are something that I never never use very rarely in mine. It's all about linking back to stories and how it actually affects people, um, yeah, on their own level. It's you know, not, not... – and, and, and that's really interesting you say that and that's kind of what I was alluding to with education. You can measure suicides. Yeah. They can create statistics and that's what they pin their hat on. You can't measure kindness. No. I would say ripples of kindness are more powerful in the community. But because you can't measure it, like up here, Lismore got flooded, destroyed. Yeah. The government comes out, yeah, we're going to buy 1,500 homes and we're going to, yeah, Move them up higher. That was two years ago. They've built, they've bought 15. Yeah. 15. And two years ago, they said they're going to buy 1,500. Yeah. So, you know, it's, we just, yeah. we just, <clears throat> just start looking after people a bit better. I think that's, uh, is, is, um, is good. So I'll write that book down in the in the show notes. So <laughs> as your favourite book. Um, so the last um, the last question I've got for you, which is which is a is an interesting one. So this question, it doesn't matter if you've met them or not met them, whether they're alive or dead. But if you could invite um, five people, if you and Lynn were putting on a dinner. And you could invite five people to dinner. Who would those five people be? Well, it'd be no one famous. Probably, probably my mum. She's ninety-two. Probably a mate of mine named Rod Bray. You'd remember him and his yep. wife Nolan. Yeah. Uh, and probably our three boys and them. Yeah, that's. I, I, I just, you know, like I, I don't. I'm not big on fame. I, I kind of shun it. So I, I think it's more important. Yeah, you see what you get, and those people, what you see is what you get. You know, it's um, <laughs> just role and play. That's very, and that's and that's very interesting that that you answer it like that, which I probably wouldn't have expected any anything different. But a lot of um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people will answer that question, and they don't, they think broader, and they'll go, yeah, Nelson Mandela or whoever, um. And don't think about the, you know, the important people that you know. I, I'd give my eye teeth because both my grandfathers died when I was seven. Yeah, I'd give my eye teeth to sit around a bar and have a beer with them. Like that would be, yeah. So it's um, yeah, 
course, it'd be good to have Nelson Mandela sitting at your table, but I'd much rather have me popping me par. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting that. that you interesting you answer it like that because um, a lot of people don't even think like that. That you know, because they're the important people in your life, and why would you have dinner with someone that's not important in your life? Well, you, you started off early on in the piece talking about all the things that have made Warren authentically all who he is, all the bits that have come together. And yep. your grandparents, your mum and dad, uncle, or everyone you've met in your life has added a little bit to who you are as a human being. And they're the people who matter to me. <laughs> so, <Yep. coughs> you know, it's... um. I've, When Mandela came out years ago, a mate of mine brought him out, actually. He brought out that Storm and Norman Swarskopf. Yeah, Graham Alford, his name is. And he got us tickets to go along and listen to Nelson. He he was good there. Yeah. He was good there, but no better than listening to my uncle talk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I just, I'm not into fame and fortune. No. Well, mate, I, um, we better wrap it up, otherwise we'll talk all day. But uh, I really appreciate your time today. Um, I appreciate your wisdom, as always. Oh. Yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, no, you're very modest. Um, you've done some great work. Like, you know, to to be doing what you're doing for the last, um, well, for all your career, but the, the stepping outside that, that box as a, as a teacher into this world and, and trying to make the world a better place for the last, whatever, 15, 20 years or, or, or more. Um, yeah, I really appreciate your time, mate. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll probably have to get you back on another time and we'll, we'll continue this um, discussion, but really appreciate um, you saying yes and, and coming on and having a chat. And as I said, like, yeah, you've, you, you, whether you like it or not, you've played a, a big part, even though it might have only been a small part, as in time-wise, played a big part in my life. So really appreciate your time. You continue, Warren. I admire what you're doing, helping communities everywhere. And um, keep it up because, my God, you know, where's the outback start? 100K signs. So you're yep. looking after people that the big smoke don't care about. And um, you're doing a mighty job. That and Lynn and I, when we we've lived in a caravan for 15 years, going to those little places, doing talks, and um, oh, it's wonderful, wonderful communities. So, yeah. So if if our past can cross at some stage, it'd be wonderful. But yeah, look, I just keep doing what you're doing. So important. Okay, buddy. I'm, I admire Thanks, you. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining me on today's podcast and I appreciate any feedback and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast.